Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Phil Belfi, enrolled member of the White Earth Band of Minnesota Chippewa, is a professor emeritus of American Indian Studies at Michigan State University. He's also the author of Indians and Other Misnomers, a cross-reference dictionary of the people, persons, and places of Native North America. Winner of the North American Indian Prose Award, Three Fires Unity is the first comprehensive cross-border history of the Anishinaabeg and provides an engaging account of 400 years of their life in the Lake Huron area. Okay, so this is the book. When I look at my screen, it's upside down or backwards, but uh, I want to first thank the organization for selecting this book because I looked at this year's list and next year's list. And it's not the only book published by an academic press, but it is the only academic book, which is very, very odd thing, of course. We do things very differently in the academy. I'm a professor emeritus of American Indian Studies from Michigan State University. And this book is a very heavily revised and edited version of my dissertation. So uh, because it's an academic thing, I want to kind of lead you through the whole process of academia and getting a PhD and all that. When I was a student, I decided that I would create these books. Let's see, here we go. These are uh, calendars, desk calendars. And my partner did all the pictures, Judith Dupre. And I wrote the uh, historic entries in here. And we did it for three years. So it's a different historic entry for every day of the year for three years, including an extra week at the beginning and a week at the end. And as I say, I was doing this when I was a graduate student. And here's the big problem with it for the academy. It was published by Random House. So it was never peer reviewed. So it has absolutely no value whatsoever in the academy. Even though it was Random House, I thought it was pretty reasonable. But uh, that's the academy. They do things very differently. This first one won the, uh, what they have is the gold award for desktop calendars. It's the highest. It was the best one for that year. And I did it on purpose so that it would be published in October of 1992 because Columbus being a, obviously a very uh, dated, date-based thing. The second one we did was we won the Silver Award, which is only second place. And the third one we did won the Bronze Award, which was third place. Judith and I were very, very happy with how it was going. We were selling maybe eight or 9,000 copies every year, which was wonderful, but Random House didn't think that was enough, so they, they cut us off after three years. But when I worked with Judith, I was, uh, she was working for Fulcum Press at the time. And that's where this book was published by. This is Indians and Other Misnomers. And it's a really, really crazy book. The subtitle is a cross-reference dictionary of the people, persons, and places of Native North America. And Native North America included Canada and the United States. And like I was saying before this thing started, it took me 11 years to get this 
book from the conception of it to the actual having it in print. And one of the reasons why it took so long is I sent out letters to every tribe in the United States of America and not every First Nation because there's like 1500 of them in Canada. But I made sure that every postal code in Canada, at least one First Nation was surveyed. And what I wanted to do, what I did in that part of it, is I asked them, what is the name that you call yourselves in your language? And the translation of that. And then the second thing that I asked them was, if you were going to call somebody, the indigenous people of North America, what one term would you use to refer to all those people? And to tell you the truth, Indian didn't come out very high on the list. It was only about 4% of the respondents said that Indian was their, their choice, first choice. It's either American Indian or Native American were the top two. And one that I liked in very, very pointed way, somebody, I think it was somebody Mohawk from out in New York way said, we should be called the landlords. I thought that was pretty reasonable. But anyway, this was another problem because this was published by Fulcrum and it was not published by a, a university press. And it was the, uh, the reason that I finally got tenure and got promoted. It was a, I, I, if somebody wants to know the whole story, I'll give you the whole story behind that. But that became very problematic because it was not a university press. My calendars were not university press. I had done some other writing for freelance writing that was not university press kind of thing. So uh, the academy is a very strange place. So then we come to this book. And like I said, it was my dissertation. And it was submitted to the University of Nebraska Press as part of their uh, American, North American Indian Prose Award uh, contest that they have. And they don't have a, a so-called winner. They don't select a book every year. Sometimes they just don't select any because they didn't think that they were reasonable or whatever. So I submitted my manuscript. It was reviewed by three different people and it was selected as the winner of the award in 2011. Actually it was before that, but it was printed in 2011. And here's the problem. I had three reviewers and one of them said, oh, this is the greatest book. I think it's just perfect. It should just be published as is looking at the manuscript. And then the other one of the other reviewers said, oh, it reads too much like a book. And then the third reviewer says, oh, it reads too much like a dissertation. So I didn't know what to do. So I was back and forth with the editor for two years trying to get him to tell me, how do you want this book to be revised? Or is it okay? Or what should I do? You know, he's the editor. I wanted to make sure that what I was going to do with that manuscript was going to be acceptable. So at the end of the two years, when I never got a response, I just said, well, I'll just do whatever I want to do. And when I was writing the book, writing my dissertation, I had the intention of having it published as a book. So I tried to do things so that I wouldn't have so much work to re-edit it. Well, one of the people on my committee, the outside reader, thought that uh, it, because it was about Indian, 
questions. I really needed a big section, like an anthropological study. So I had to put in a whole bunch of stuff that I really didn't want to do, but because she's on the committee, she has a vote. So I had to put in a whole bunch of that stuff. And there was some concern from other members of the committee because I tell the, the story of the creation of the St. Mary's Rapids and it's, you know, that's not very academic. But as I said, I was thinking of this as a book. So I finally did get all of it straightened out. I had it edited by a professional person, although I taught first year writing at MSU. So I know a little bit about grammar and spelling, all that stuff. And I also had a, a Potawatomi woman that I met create the maps for it because it's a really, really interesting thing. Let's see if I can find one of the maps here just to show you. This is a cross-border study, which I'll get to in a second. Okay, so there's, a, there's one of the maps. What's the problem with looking for maps that show the United States and Canada? You can't find them. The only maps I could find that showed the United States and Canada were weather maps, where they had the little isobars, you know, here's the average temperature for a year, et cetera. So it was very, very, very frustrating for me so I'm doing this cross-border study between the U.S. and Canada in the Lake Huron borderlands, and I can't find any maps. So my dissertation was kind of a jumbled up thing with maps, but I had this woman create these. She's a professional cartographer, and she did a very good, nice job. So all of that took a lot of time. And I can't remember exactly when I submitted the manuscript and uh, was told that it would be published as the winner of the North American Indian Prose Award. But they finally got everything all straightened out. And, uh, you know, when you send the manuscript to them, I don't know how it is with non-academic press necessarily, but there's a very, very long, very, very tedious process that they have to go through. And it, it takes them, you know, like 18 months to even get the thing so that it could be printed. So anyway, that took a long time. All of that stuff took, takes a long time. So I finally get the thing published. I'm eligible for promotion to a full professor. And I tell them, got this nice book, won the North American Indian Prose Award. It's like the Pulitzer Prize for Native people. And I'm not there anymore. Obviously, I'm retired, so I can say bad things about them. What they did, Part of the process of being promoted is you have to go through this process. You submit your documents, and here's what I did this year, and this is what I published this year, and et cetera, et cetera. And the, the merit pay and your promotion are based on things that are meritorious. And one of the things that is meritorious is that you're the editor of a peer-reviewed journal, and I was. I took a, a newsletter back in the old listserv days and I put that online as a journal and then discussing it with all the other people that were involved in it, we decided to do a peer reviewed. So I created the peer reviewed journal. I was the editor of it for a number of years. And that's one of the things that's meritorious. You have to be, I mean, you don't have to, but I'm saying if you are the editor of a peer reviewed journal, you get extra points. 
if you publish a book, you get extra points. And because it was published by an academic press, that works. It didn't work on the other ones, but it worked on this one. So here's what my department did. They changed the bylaws to read. You have to be, you can get merit if you are the editor of a peer-reviewed journal of substantial quality. And your book must be of substantial quality. Because I do Indian shit, it had zero value, zero. Both of those things are considered to be meritorious until they change the bylaws to say, no, if it's Indian ship, it has no value whatsoever to us. And I won't go into the whole long story, but in order to get my promotion and my tenure, I had to threaten them with a million dollar lawsuit. And they realized that I would have won that. So they promoted me and gave me tenure. When they refused to give me promotion because I won the North American Indian Pros Award, I said, okay, I'm gonna sue you for a million bucks and you're gonna promote me. So uh, they had the general counsel at Michigan State University look into it. And at first they said, no, you don't have a case, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna promote you. So then I brought up the issue and I gave them another half inch of paper the issue about them denying my promotion and my tenure because I did Indian shit. They said, okay, we will promote you. And so I was promoted to full professor on August 31st, 2012, and I retired on September 1st of 2012. And that's another long story perhaps involved there, but I was full professor at Michigan State University for one day. And they were very happy to give it to me and I was kind of happy to leave because the, the academy is a wonderful place, but the administration and the bureaucracy is just horrendous, especially for minority people. It's just bizarre, quite frankly, just totally bizarre. So uh, I'd be happy to answer some questions. Uh, I have a whole big pile of books here that I can show you. Let me just show you this one little thing here. I took a class at MSU. If you're a faculty, you can take classes for free. So I took two classes towards the end of my career. One was on making books and the other one was letterpress, printing things. So this is not printed on a letterpress. This is a picture of some rocks from Lake Superior. I'm an avid photographer. And I actually have this book almost ready to go on my printing press. It's a little bit, little bit bigger. I got a couple more pages to print. But uh, let me just show you, I'm a, I'm a minimalist poet. So let me see if I can show you my, my most famous minimalist poem. Let's see, uh, up there we go. Okay, does anybody know what that is? We missed it. Unmute yourself. <laughs> I just caught the first word. It said mother. Mother. Yeah. Okay, you got to hold. Oh, it's hard to see. Read it. Can you read it to us? It's not too long. Okay, I can read you the title. It says mother, child, insect, observation, and response. And that should give you an idea of what the... 
mother-child observation and response. I don't know. What is what? Okay. There's an A. Then there's a B with an exclamation point. Then a C with a comma. A D with a question mark, and an E with a exclamation point. A B, C, D, E, mother, child, insect, observation, and response. That's my most minimalist poem. It's got four letters of punctuation. <laughs> anyway, I have some, I also do uh, black prints. So here's one of my black prints that's going to go in there. So then they took it out of the little bag. Oh. So it should be, uh, it goes like that, I think. There's one section of the book that deals with the culture clash, the two cultures, the native and the visitor class. That, and one of the homes is very, very minimal, of course. It's Cannons and Cannons, C-A-N-O-N-S and C-A-N-N-O-N-S. And this bomb here is the, uh, it's got the cross on there, as you can see. So anyway, it's one of my fun things to do. Took some block prints, print them up in my little printing press, and my big printing press actually. I'm making books. Okay, uh, if there's no questions or if there are questions, I'd be happy to answer them, but I got a lot of other stuff here piled up here on screen. Well, show you. If anybody has any questions, they could unmute and ask. I'm gonna start with one. Can you please pronounce this word? <laughs> oh yeah, the name of them. Can you hear me? Uh, I can't. I can't hear you now. Oh, can you? I can I'm hear you now when you say that. Yeah, I didn't hear the word you were trying to get me to pronounce. In the title, how do you pronounce this? This Anishinaabeg? I'm not sure. Anishinaabeg, yeah. Anishinaabeg. Okay, that's how I yeah. said it in my head. I'm glad to hear that I was right. <laughs> do we? Yeah. Have well, there's a. It's it's kind of a. Well, the Ojibwe language is kind of odd in many ways because it depends on what community you're from. Another community might pronounce that very differently. The Potawatomi just say Nishnabek. Huh? They drop the A off the end of it and it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. And the Odawa probably pronounce it differently too because they got the Odawa and Ottawa. It depends on what community you're in. Some people call themselves Ottawa and other people call themselves Odawa. So uh, and plus, there's no spelling conventions. If you saw the book, towards the back, I have all the lists of all the, the native people and the treaties and all that kind of stuff. And when I was first starting my PhD program, you are required, it's American Studies degree, by the way. You're required to have a reading knowledge of a second language what they called foreign language. And I argued with them over the whole thing about foreign language, because I want to do Ojibwe. Anishinaabe Mawen, which is the language of the Anishinaabe people. And they wanted me to do French. I said, no, I'm doing Ojibwe. 
So that's what I ended up doing. I have a reading knowledge of Ojibwe. I'm not a first language speaker by any stretch. But it proved to be very valuable because there were no spelling conventions when they were making these treaties. So as one example, I don't know if anybody ever heard of the, the name of this, this little town in Sheboygan County. Most people pronounce it Tupinabe, Tupinabe, T-O-P-I-N-A-B-E-E. -E. Well, I asked one of my language instructors how he would pronounce it. And he said it would probably Tapanabe. Okay, so Tapanabe appears in, I think it's 12 treaties and his name is spelled 13 different ways. <laughs> so it was very difficult when I was going through these, all these treaties, trying to figure out, is this person the same as that person? Mm -hmm. Their names would be spelled differently. And so I do mention that in the book that there, there may be a problem with some of it. Maybe I put somebody in there that really shouldn't be in there, but you know, it's close enough. And my major professor said that when people are put down their names into their treaties, that's probably the same person because the native people didn't just go and randomly select folk to do their treaties. So the spelling was a very problematic thing. So uh, there may be three dozen or so people who signed treaties, so-called on the American side for the Americans and the British side for the British, you know, Canadian, as we might say. And that's the basis of my book. Did we, as Native people, sign treaties as if we were Nishnabek? And not because we were American, not because we were Canadian, had nothing to do with your residency. Depending on, like, just for an example, I like to use when they were negotiating the NAFTA agreement, North American Free Trade Agreement. You think the American government said, oh, we got to have Mexican Americans go down there and talk to the Mexicans? And we got to get some Canadian Americans to go talk to the Canadians? Of course not. They selected the people who they thought could represent their interests. And they did the negotiation. And it's no different for us. We had no, we still don't, in fact, care about that border. That border exists between the US and Canada. It doesn't exist between us. And so uh, going off on this particular tangent, perhaps, when people do dissertations, and my major professor once gave me this little piece of paper, put it on my desk one day, and it says, there was a quote from J. Frank Dobie, who was an academic, and the little quote said, the average dissertation is the movement of bones from one graveyard to another. And I decided that no, my dissertation was not gonna be an average dissertation. I wanted it to actually have some, some value in spending all this time and all this effort. So uh, one thing that happened because of this, and I, I know more about trans-border indigenous issues than anybody in North America. I'm not saying that because I want to pat myself on the back. It's just, it's an established fact. I'm, I am the person who has studied more about First Nations people and American Indian people on the border than anybody else. So that was the value of my dissertation. You're supposed to be able to do something that no one else has ever done before. 
that's what dissertations are all about. And that's what I did. And I chose that as my, my area of study. When I first proposed it, I wanted to go from the Maine, New Brunswick border all the way up to the Yukon, uh, Alaska border. And my major professor said, and you want to do this before you're retired, Phil? <laughs> uh, I should mention I didn't get my PhD until I was 44 years old, so I could see where he was coming from. I was older than he was at the time, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so anyway. We've got a question. When I did, yes. Well, I, I just personally would like to know um, if you are Native American or are you Ojibwe or why? Yes. Okay. Yes. It kind of sounded like you were, but I was, I'd like to, you know, just to be sure. <laughs> yes, I've, I've been an Indian since April. April 7th of 1946. I'm a member of the White Earth Band of Minnesota Chippewa. So yes, I'm a Native person. I, as we say, we're card-carrying Native people. I have a membership card, federally recognized White Earth Band of Minnesota Chippewa. So yes, uh, that's also part of the problem that I had at Michigan State. Because there's always a question of who gets to call somebody else an Indian. I'm a very low blood quantum person, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it. And there's always been a big problem in the Native community. How, how much Indian are you? And I say, and I actually asked that question by a border guard once here at St. Marie. And I, my response was, I am a member of the White Earth Band of Minnesota Chippewa. And the border guard said, that's not the question I asked you. I asked you what percentage you are. And I said, I'm a member of the White Earth Band in Minnesota Chippewa. He said, well, I'm the border guard here and I'm gonna ask you a question. You have the responsibility to answer them. And I said, and I'm a member of the White Earth Band in Minnesota Chippewa and I have the right to cross this border without being hassled by you. And as soon as I said the word hassle, he stopped. Because they're not allowed to hassle people. And I, we had a long, long discussion sitting there one evening at the border. And I finally told him, I said, don't you ever ask anybody what percentage they are. We're not kennel club dogs, you know, we're human beings. And I think I convinced him to not ask that question. And it's, it's disturbing to many of us. And I know there's a lot of people who think, and this is a part of the argument we got into at Michigan State, which was never resolved as a matter of fact. Well, how much Indian are you, Phil? Ask answer them with the same question. I'm a member of the tribe, federally recognized. What difference does that make? And in Sault Ste. Marie, the Sioux tribe is a is a non-blood quantum tribe. You just have to show your lineal descent. In my tribe, it's a little bit different. I'm the last generation of people who can be members without a quarter blood. It's the entire Minnesota Chippewa tribe because of some really crazy shit we had to go through back when we were getting our federal recognition, they made a compromise. We wanted to have everybody, they, the federal government said, no, you gotta be quarter blood. So they made this compromise that anybody who was born to a person who was a member at the time that they signed those treaties for the, the federal recognition documents, those people could become members like my brother, and sisters, my brothers and sister are members, but none of the children are, the next generation. So it's a genocide is really what it is. 
you know, at some point, you're not going to be enough quarter blood people. So the government will just say, well, there's no Indians anymore. We don't have any responsibilities anymore and everything will be fine. In fact, there's at least one uh, First Nation in Canada that is at that point right now. There is not one member of their band that is a quarter blood. Unless they can get their, the, you know, the Canadian government to change some kind of ruling over that, they're just going to disappear when the, the people who are alive today are, are dead. So uh, the whole federal recognition thing is a big, big problem. The blood quantum is a really big problem. And our band, the White Earth Band, did pass a constitution that eliminated the blood quantum thing. But the Minnesota Chippewa tribe that we're a part of protested vigorously and actually forced the, uh, our tribal chair at the time, Irving Bisner, to resign over it. They were going to kick her out of office because she pushed this supposedly unconstitutional process. Through. But anyway, it's a very, very uh, troubling issue. And now if we got time, I can tell you another little bit of a story. It was probably about, uh, well, it was over 100 years ago, about 1917, 1918. There was a movement on the White Earth Reservation and that they petitioned the Department of Interior and the title of the thing is called For the Purification of the White Earth Rolls. And they named about 90 people, 45 of them were Belfies, my grandpa, and all of his siblings and all the relatives that we had there. And two other families, the Beaulieu's, which we were very close related to, and then the Fairbanks. And I'm not positive why the Fairbanks were included in that, but I'm pretty sure why the Belfies and the Beaulieu's were in there. Again, it's a very, very strange story, but my grandpa's uncle, Clement Beaulieu, this was during the time when they were trying to allot land to people. You know, you, you get to take so many acres, you get to take so many acres if you're head of the household, if you're under 18, you get 40, et cetera, et cetera. And there was always a big question of what are the quote half breeds? What's their, you know, can they be taking land at White Earth? And uh, we're all half, considered half breeds at that point. We weren't pure blood people. And so my great uncle had Chief Paganagizic killed. Chief Paganagizic said, no, no half-breeds get any land. So we had him killed. He hired some guys from Leech Lake and they killed him. And uh, what they ended up doing is they had two lines. Half-breeds were in one line, the full bloods were in the other line. So you, you get your land, you get your land, you get your land, you get your land. And that's how they resolve that issue. But it's obviously not something that our families are very proud of. And I think that's the reason why they wanted to kick us out of there. Uh, what happened was, is when the, the roles were created, they were sent to Washington, D.C. And the, the Minnesota Chippewa tribe submitted all these names and said, these people are enrolled in our tribe. And then you ratify them. And so what the Department of Interior did is they said, you people at White Earth, you had the right to challenge any name on this list before they send it to Washington. And you didn't. 
And so therefore, it's, a, it's, a, it's legislation, quite frankly. It's people on the rolls, you can't kick them off. So as they say, the rest is history. You know, it's a very, very interesting part of our story as a family. And as I say, we're not proud of it, of course, but it is what it is. Anyway, we're, we're still members of the tribe at that point. We retained our membership. And unfortunately, you know, my nieces and nephews cannot be members of the tribe. I don't have children, so it doesn't affect me directly, but it's a, it's a disturbing thing to think about because all the so-called half-breeds, and when we die, that's pretty much the end of it because there's not that many full-bloods out there and means that many quarter-blood people out there. So, you know, that's, I guess that's a little more, that's a TMI from the, from the young people. There's too much information for us, but yes, I am a tribal member. Uh, Phil, I had a question. Um, in the introduction, you go over establishing what the different terms mean, and it was a real eye-opener to find out, you know, what a colonialist notion that the frontier is. Could you just talk about uh, that subject for a minute? Uh, yes, the the whole frontier was a very, very odd thing. And I can remember President Obama made a speech and I can't remember exactly what the, the context of the speech was, but he was talking about how proud he was of the pilgrims and the people who went out there to, to tame the West and the, the pioneer spirit and all that kind of stuff. And I said to myself, what does taming the West mean? What does that mean? That means they went out and shot all of us essentially, right? and the ones that couldn't shoot, they starved them out in the Great Plains. They just literally starved the people out. It was a deliberate policy to kill the buffalo so that the native people would force to go to the reservation and subsist on rations. Now, it's not something that people are making up because it's a tragic story. It's in the legislation. I mean, they, they talk about this. This is the purpose of it, to starve the Indians so that they have to go on the reservation. And in our case here in Michigan, we were all supposed to go to Kansas is where they had set aside, like all the people in the Southern areas were going to Oklahoma, all the people in the Northern areas were all gonna to go to Kansas. Well, we had been allotted some land in Kansas and the people up here said, we don't wanna go anywhere. We don't wanna leave this area. We can give it over to the settlers. Our ancestors are buried here. We want to stay. And so there was some kind of clever language in the treaties. When the Indians shall request it, we will pay for their passage out to Kansas so they can look at their new land. And the native people here said, oh, when we requested, how about we never request to go out there and look at the land? And so they resisted that effort. There were some natives who were removed down, like around the uh, Port Huron area, down southern, all of southern Michigan too, of course. A lot of the Potawatomi from down there were moved out. But here in northern Michigan, we resisted. And one of the things that we were also supposed to do is we were all supposed to go to White Earth after that. And so my family did. My ancestors went to White Earth. That was kind of like the, the northern Oklahoma after that Kansas thing all fell apart. But anyway, the whole idea about the frontier 
is a very, very bizarre thing. Uh, we signed treaties. We agreed to allow this, to share this land with the settlers. We didn't agree to do anything else. We agreed to allow them to share the land with us. So there's an interesting thing when you talk about the frontier in the US, mainly what they wanted to do is they wanted to move everybody out so that frontier would actually be a separation between the white people and the native people. Canada did it very differently. As I mentioned before, when I was talking about Indians and other misnomers, I didn't send out letters to all the First Nations in Canada because there's too many of them. There's 110 just in Ontario. Because what they did is they said, yeah, we want all this land for the settlers, but we're gonna let you stay. We'll give you 80 acres, 100 acres, or 200 or whatever it is, as your reserve. You can stay here, but we're giving the rest away to the white belt. So they have literally well over a thousand, I think it's more like 1500 First Nations all across Canada which creates a lot of really serious problems for them these days because every railroad, every highway, every utility line, every pipeline goes through a First Nations territory, through a reserve, every single one. And so there have been times in the past, I'm mean, getting into it all now, but there have been times in the past that the native peoples have shut the country down. All they gotta do is block a railroad. That's it, that's the end of it block a highway out west where there's not that many highways around. So it's a very different situation in Canada than it is in the U.S. They really never really had a frontier. Here started on the east coast with the Pequot people and the slaughter of the Pequots and the frontier just kept moving over until it gets out there to the Pacific Ocean. So the whole idea about a frontier is very, very problematic and the whole idea behind even a border is very, very problematic. So these are still issues we're dealing with. And when I did this book, I made sure that all of the tribal leaders in the area got a copy. And well, there's two First Nations on the north side of the river and two tribes on the south side, Bay Mills and Sioux Tribe, Batchewan and Garden River on the north. And I said, there's no border, etc. All the stuff that's in my book, Sugar Island, which we can talk about if we want to. And my, their response was, Phil, we got so much trouble dealing with one government, you want to deal with two? So I will say this other thing about the, in that area. I hope I answered your question about the frontier, but when 911 happened, obviously the borders were shut down. And here in the Sioux, there's obviously this crossing between Sioux, Ontario and Sioux, Michigan. And there was never a problem. Never a problem. You just show me driver's license and, you know, they see, oh, you're in Sault Ste. Marie. Okay, who cares? Come in, go in, you know, back and forth. And the Native people is the same thing. You know, so what if you're a Canadian First Nations person or American tribal person? You know, it was no problem. After 9-1-1, they really tightened up things tremendously. It made border crossing very, very difficult for people because they could just literally go back and forth on their tribal car. They didn't need a passport or anything. So 911 came and they imposed all kinds of restrictions. 
And the native people here were really, really concerned about it. And one of the requirements for the native people in Canada was that they would have had to have a machine readable card so that the border people could just you know, slip your card through like the driver's license kind of thing. They said, no, we're not gonna do that. It's gonna be issued by the Canadian government and it has the Canadian flag on it. So no, we're not Canadian citizens. We're First Nations people. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do it. So they had an agreement with the, the border guard and the Homeland Security people. They could travel back and forth on their tribal car. And I can't remember how many years that was. I was part of a group of tribal people and First Nations people on both sides called the Anishinaabeg Joint Commission. So I was not at the top of the heap and things, but I was advising them on a lot of this stuff. So that was about to run out. That agreement they had was going to run out. And they were having another meeting. And I wasn't there. I heard this from the people who were there. The agreement was, if you don't let us go back and forth on our tribal cards, then nobody crosses this border. Nobody. I will have 100 people here within 15 minutes and shut this border down if you hassle us. This is Dean Sayers. He's the the chief over at uh, Batuana. And so they said, mm, let's not do that. Let's try a, a different approach. And the different approach that they came up with was, we will allow you to cross on your cards. We will help you get the equipment so that you can make machine readable cards for your people. And then you can use those cards to go back and forth. And that was a fairly reasonable argument. So they signed a memorandum of understanding and they put into that memorandum of understanding something that I'm very, very proud of, very happy about. First time in the history of the world, the US government said, Batsumana and Garden River are indigenous nations of North America. And you know what they did? They took all of the treaty stuff that I put into my book and said, and here's the reason why. These people are not Canadians, they're not Americans, they're First Nation, or they're indigenous nations of North America. So when you're in the acad academia, you're stuff, like I said before, it's a movement of bones from one graveyard to another. But my book, my dissertation had a real positive effect on the lives of many, many people up here. And so I'm very proud of that. And like I said, it's the first time in the history of the world that they recognize that we are not Americans or Canadians. We're Anishinaabeg. We are our own, our own people, if you will. We're, we're separate nations, we're indigenous nations. And yes, we've got a lot of problems on the border. We've got a lot of problems internally with the US government and the Canadian government. Huge, huge problems. But that one thing, in a sense, made it all worthwhile for all the effort that I put into that, into this book and into all the research that I did on it. And again, it's one of those things is the native people knew this for a century or more, that Shingwak, for example, signed treaties on the American side and treaties with the, the British. But no one had ever actually sat down and did a 
a rigorous academic research project that ended up being my dissertation to actually show that the US and Canadian governments, that yes, we are distinct people. So if, if there is a takeaway, that's the takeaway. Um, I wanted to ask anybody out there in the audience, does anyone have a question for Phil um, before we, you know, before an hour's up and, you know, maybe people have other things to do, but, but does anyone want to ask Phil anything? All you have to do is unmute yourself. Okay. All right. We oh, yes. Okay. So Hilton Moore, go ahead and unmute yourself. Can I unmute him? I'm going to try to unmute him because it looks like he had his hand up. Um, no, I can't. <laughs> okay, while, while I'm trying to do that, go ahead and ask your question. I had a question. In the, in the book, you kind of have, um, I was just wondering, did you travel to these places when you were doing your dissertation? You've got like Sugar Island and Manitou Island and like Warkle Island down in by Detroit. Did you travel to these places at all or just got the stuff from the first native people like you? Uh, yes, I did. I traveled to Walpole and McCormickong on Manitoulin Island. And I visited with uh, a number of tribal people in order to, first of all, I wanted to make sure that they knew that I wasn't trying to exploit any information that they're giving me, and I'm doing it for a, a good purpose because a lot of people in academia that go out there and exploit mm, yeah. tribal knowledge, and you know, it's not a good thing. You don't want to do that. In fact, I'll show you this book here. This is a reprint of a book that was published in. Uh, 1918, I think it's called Joe Pete by Florence McClinchy. And she had a cottage out on Sugar Island. And she became very good friends with a lot of native people there. And they told her a lot of stories, a lot of uh, traditional knowledge that they shared with her. And they had no idea she was going to write that book. <laughs> and there are people today, it's over 100 years now, there are people today on Sugar Island and descendants thereof who still really, really, really dislike Florence McClinchy. And that's one book. And then there's another one here that I edited that she did as a sequel. And she was killed in a car accident before that actually became in print, but we will go into the long story of how it came to me. But the reason that it, both of these projects came to me is because the Chippewa County Historical Society had people read that Big John manuscript and they said, oh, this is too controversial. We're not going to get involved with it. So one of the people on the Historical Society contacted me and said, Phil, can you do it? Well, you probably can't read it here, but right in the bottom of the corner there, it says ZB Press, Center for the Study of Indigenous Border Issues. That's my organization and we published it under that under that name and it's still very controversial but as i say in the introduction that i wrote it's history you know nobody disputes the fact that what florence mcclinchy was saying was her understanding of the world 
for the Sugar Islanders at that time. Nobody, nobody disputes that. So, uh, again, there is a big controversy. And yes, I went and I traveled to these communities and I talked to people and I became very good friends actually with all of the tribal leaders, not so much in Wokamakong and, and Manitoulin, but at Walpole and the four uh, nations here in Sault Ste. Marie. So yeah, Phil, you have to be very careful. Yes. My name is Hilton Moore and I'm a fiction writer or that's what I'd like to be. Um, I'm interested in the transition of the MIDI religion post-European contact. Can you point me in a direction, a reference to work from or something? I'm, I'm, I'd like some input. Uh, did you say Midei? Yes, I may not pronounce it correctly, yes. Yeah, it's usually pronounced Midei. And I've had some contact with a lot of the Midei people. And uh, I'll be very honest. They're way too patriarchal and way too monotheistic for me. And there's a lot of, I'm not sure how the word is, syncretism or something, but it's a lot of Christianity involved in it. And, and I met Eddie Benton Benet, who was there, he recently passed, but he was the, the grand chief of the Midday. And we did talk about some things and we came to some kind of understanding about how some of their philosophy doesn't really jive with the with the real world, which is not unusual, of course. You know, all the religions in the world have internal controversies, if you will. So uh, there's a lot of really, really ugly uh, talk about the midday too. They're cannibalistic and that kind of crazy stuff. You know? I, I missed that so point. If I was point. Here, there, I'm there, some people consider them to be cannibalistic folk. Okay. So there's a lot of controversy along on both sides. So I would just suggest that you be very careful. Like in Eddie Benton Benet's book that he talks about the migration story and I have the migration in there with a, a different map that he has. And that's what we talked about. Uh, these are stories. They're meant to be told to people for like parables from the Bible. Mm -hmm. and you have to take those issues and you don't have to say that these are exactly the way the world was organized and that we were actually placed here from the sky by God, which is some people think that the word Anishinaabeg means those people who are, descended, who are placed here from the stars. And there may be some value in that object, but for that quote translation, but in everything, everything you have to, take it with a grain of salt. You have to say, well, this is one person's argument and this is another person's argument it may not be the same. Like I put in there the definitions of the word Chippewa. You know, there's, there's whole bunches of them. Which one is the one that's most valid? Well, the one that's most valid is the one that, that speaks to you. I enjoyed reading your, your book. I have read it from cover to cover. But I, I am interested in um, kind of elaborating on the um, Midday 
religion in a, in a fiction work. And I want to make sure I have it right as far as how they look at their religion as opposed to how anybody else looks at it. Right. Well, again, it's my understanding of it. And I'm not, I was never inducted into their religion, but they believe that they were on the East Coast. And most Native people, or at least Anishinaabeg people, would believe that is indeed the case. And we had to leave the East Coast because of pestilence and all kinds of other things, which I believe is when the, the Norse came over here and brought all their European diseases. You don't want to be around them people anymore, so you leave. Right. So that's why we kept moving. We kept moving west, we moved west, we moved west, and Sault Ste. Marie is one of the places, the stopping points. Apostle Islands is one of the stopping points, and there's other ones along the way. So, uh, and Eddie Benton Benet tells the story is we left the East Coast, we went down to St. Lawrence River, down Niagara Falls Way in Detroit, and came up, and, uh, and like I said, we discussed this, and no. Would you go down into the Mohawk territory under your free will and go, you know, another four or five hundred miles out of your way just to go down there and talk to the Mohawks? No, you're going to stay as far away from those people as you could and take the northern route, which is you saw it. You saw the map in there that shows that. Right, I did. So you, you have to, you have to, you know, kind of. Uh, this, it's a cautionary tale. And like I, like Eddie and I talked and said, well, Phil, yes, there may have been a different stopping points, but if you want to get people interested in our way of life and our thought patterns, you have to bring it to their level. And so when you say we traveled through Niagara Falls and Detroit and you know, people can understand that. And I don't have any argument with it. Maybe some people didn't go that way. Maybe other people took the, the northern route that I suggest. So that's the kind of thing that I would suggest that you do, is talk to the people who are involved in it. And I know there's a lot of people involved in it here in the Sioux and all over the place. But there's also the other more traditional, the Sundance people, you know, and you should probably get some kind of ideas about how they view that, that spiritual existence. So, and Eddie did wear this button on his hat that said born again pagan, which I thought was just very appropriate. And that's what I call myself now. Even though I'm not my day, I'm a born again pagan. So I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school for 12 years. All my- uh, How do you view the Catholic- My grandpa's- How do you view the Catholic uh, religion and its um, imprint on the Ojibwa? Uh, like I said, I was raised a Catholic. My grandpa and all his brothers are called Joseph, and his sisters are all Mary, quite frankly. Mary Rose, Mary Elizabeth, Mary Jane. My, my grandpa was called Joseph. But all the other ones, and there about six or seven of them, were called by their middle name. The Catholic Church was incredibly important for a lot of people. The whole Métis movement in Canada with Louis Riel, et cetera, and the, you know, the fact that they're dual language country, that's all because of the Métis people. And the word Métis, of course, is French for mixed blood. 
So there is no way to escape the uh, Christian religion and its influence on Native people. No way. They were sent to boarding schools that were run by Christian churches, some of them Catholic, some of them Episcopalian and Baptist and Methodist, and depending upon whomever was you know, in the position to, to uh, support the Native people at those boarding schools. So it's not just the Catholics, although obviously it's a, a big part of what's going on. There was even the Mormon church involved in the, a lot of the Native issues. So uh, there's really not that much Catholic influence in the Upper Great Lakes that I'm aware of. Like the boarding schools were not run by the Catholics here. They were run by other religious groups. I think the Jesuits may have had one or the Catholics may have had one in uh, Spanish in, in Canada along the North Shore. I think they may have been Catholic. But that's, a, that's another, uh, I have a real serious problem with people who are Native and Catholic because of the way that we were abused by those priests and by the church itself. So, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to talk to about it. You point me to a reference. Although work. my family, like I said, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Can you point me What's to that? a reference work? Uh, it just being garbled, I didn't catch that. Can you point me to a reference work about the Ojibwa and the, um, the um, reservation schools? Uh, I can't point to one book in particular, but uh, I'm just checked because I know that we're we're getting close to the end of the hour. What I can do is, um, Phil and Hilton, I will email you each other. I will give you each other the contacts for the other person, and that'll give Phil a little bit more time to think. Maybe he's got some other ideas of books that he could send to you. That would be wonderful. Yeah, Thank you. I I'm going to do that. I'm going to write that down. And I know like we're getting a little bit over the time. Does any other wrap up questions or anything that anyone wants to ask Phil before we go? Or comments in general? You know, I, I just wanted to mention, uh, uh, Phil, um, you know, you talk about in your book and you mentioned here tonight, uh, that the Anishinaabe migration happened about the same time that we know that there was uh, the Norse people, um, you know, arriving in the Northern Atlantic, uh, North America. Um, that's a field that's been so plagued by hoaxes and just nonsense and people wanting to see what they want to see. Do you think there'll ever be a, will we ever have a better understanding of whether or not diseases from those contexts pushed migration. Um, and it's interesting to note, by the way, uh, that the Haudenosaunee have uh, kind of similar stories about disease from exactly the same time. But where do you see the future, I guess, of, of that field of study going? Well, I'm actually getting a little more optimistic lately. Like I've, I've studied a lot of stuff in Canada and I listened to a lot of their radio and read a lot of their newspapers and everything. And it's almost uh, 
diametrically opposed. In the U.S., you hardly ever hear anything about Native people. In Canada, you hear about them every day just because they're there. You know. Here, we're, we're pushed off in the reservations and these tiny little communities, and who cares? But after the uh, fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline, I think Native people are getting a little bit better reception here in the United States. And so I'm a bit more optimistic on that. We may actually be able to come to some sort of understanding about how real history is. And Biden now as president is talking about uh, doing a lot of things in social justice, which includes us Native people. And he's even uh, Deb Holland is a Pueblo person is going to be our Secretary of the Interior which is wonderful. And we should have a better voice. We should be able to get a little bit better understanding from people. And in fact, uh, here again, I'm tooting my heart here. This does a report from the uh, Sierra Club. And I have an article in there. It was not this recent one, but the last one, about how we have to treat the land as if it was indigenous and had its spirit. And that's how we're going to be able to solve all these problems that we face. And I was very happy that they contacted me to do this article because they needed an indigenous perspective. And I think we're gonna have a lot more indigenous perspectives that are going to be accepted by, I guess we call it the mainstream. And so I'm optimistic. And we've been fighting this fight for a very, very long time and maybe even centuries. And we are starting to make a little bit of progress. And we talk about that controversy with the uh, the East Coast was also the big controversy over the Bering Strait theory. You know, maybe that's not true anymore. We've been finding all kinds of sites, archaeological sites that predate the Bering Strait in North America and Central America. And I think there's even some in South America that they are starting to question that whole thing. So as I say, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that we are going to have a, a much louder voice in the, the discussion here in North America. So we can hope, that's all we can do. Good question, Adam. Okay, well, um, uh, Hilton, if you can check the chat, I'm just asking to clarify your email to make sure I have the right one. Um, if you could send that to me in the chat. And um, yeah, I, I well, from us here in Crystal Falls, thank you. And, um, and thanks to, thank you, Phil, and, and everyone for coming in tonight. And next month, we meet to talk about John Smolin's Out. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com